Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. And a few weeks ago, we started this series, The Fullness of Life. And I know I, for one, have been really excited about this series. I've, I've known that it has been coming since I started, and I enjoyed the Revelation series. But there's just something about this idea of the abundant life, right? I think it's what everybody's looking for, whether you're a Christian or you're not. We all want to have this abundant life, but so many of us so often seek it in the wrong place. We're looking for it in all the wrong places. And in, in John 10:10, 10, 10, Jesus said, The thief comes only to steal and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So it kind of makes us wonder, <laughs> what exactly does it look like to have life abundantly? What does that look like, especially since so many would probably describe their life as not being abundant? One way or another, it's not as abundant or as much as what you would like it to be. So what does Jesus mean exactly here? Does it mean to have everything that we ever asked for? Does it mean to have that, that big promotion at work or that lake house or the perfect kids or some mixture of all the above? Is that what the abundant life is? I don't think so. <laughs> because it seems like there are some people who have all of those things and they're still looking for something more. Life still isn't fulfilling. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly? That's the question that we're seeking to answer as we walk through this series for the next few weeks or months. I actually don't know how long this series will be. The Revelation series was a long one, so who knows? We could be here a while. And if we are, I am happy to be here. Right? That, a word, that word abide, to sit in the word, to sit in this series and see what it means to have abundant life. Last week, we started by looking at John 15, 1 through 11. Right, we talked about that, that importance of being connected to the vine. Jesus tells us to remain in him, and he will remain in us. And that leads to fruitfulness. When we, the branches, are connected to Christ, the vine, that life of Jesus flows into us, and it leads us into fruitfulness. Amen. Amen. Our fruitfulness isn't something that we can achieve on our own. It's not something that we can, it's not like checking off a list, a, a to-do list, or, or crossing things off a grocery list, right? Maybe for a short time that will appear to be fruitful. Maybe for a short time if we get all of our Bible reading done, or if we're at church every Sunday, or if we make it to youth group every Wednesday, that appears fruitful. But there's something deeper. There's something more and it becomes an apparent that it's all a facade if we're doing this under our own strength, apart from Christ. True fruitfulness is the inevitable outcome of an interior, interior spiritual life with Christ. 
True fruitfulness is the inevitable outcome of an interior spiritual life with Christ. Try saying that time five times fast. Interior spiritual life with Christ. <laughs> I want to remind you of a few verses we looked at last week. John 15, 9 through 11 says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And if we were to stop there, it seems simple enough, right? And I think often when we think about abiding in Christ, a lot of us have this idea of something that's it's going to be great, it's going to be comfy, it's going to be cozy, it's you know, this deeply spiritual and intimate encounter, and sometimes those things are all true. It can feel like a safe space. It can feel like this moment when we're wrapped up in Christ's arms and sheltered from the world. After all, Jesus said that he's spoken these things so that his joy may be in us and that our joy may be full. But as we're about to find out, the fullness of joy came to Christ at great cost. And it will come to us at a great cost. But the reward is much greater. Whatever that cost is, the reward is much greater. John 15, 12 through 17, this is our passage for this week, says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. John 15, 11, that verse about joy seems to be a bridge, and it seems to be a connecting point between these two sections of John 15. If you keep my commandments, you abide in my love. And now we begin to um, unpack what those commandments are. Christ's command could not be more simple to understand or more difficult to live out. Not be more simple to understand or more difficult to live out. Love each other as I have loved you. Right? It seems, seems easy enough. Love each other. We hear it all the time. As a matter of fact, as Christians, we're, we're called not only to love each other, not just our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to love our enemies. Right? to treat our neighbors as we want to treat ourselves or as we'd like to be treated. Love is this word that we use all of the time, and yet I'm not sure that we all fully grasp the weight of that word. Right? I know that I'm guilty, probably just like some of you are, of using the word love a bit flippantly at times. Right? I, would probably, I would probably hesitate 
to use love to explain the way I feel about a person who's not my wife or my family or close friends, but I'm quick to say things like, oh man, I love music, I love pizza, I love a good medium rare steak, I love to mountain bike, right? There's all these things that I say I love, but what I really mean when I say those things is I thoroughly enjoy them. Right, I thoroughly enjoy it. And you can fill in the blank with whatever that thing is. That thing that makes us happy. But the love that Jesus is calling us to is much more than a superficial feeling or satisfaction. Amen. Verse 13 goes on to explain this love that he's talking about. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. In other words, the greatest way that love could be shown is to lay our lives down for somebody else. That's the greatest way that we could show our love to someone. The word that Jesus is using here is the word agape. Agape love is is not a a basic feeling. It's not the, the butterflies you get in your stomach when you're on that, you know, third or fourth date and you're starting to realize, I think I might love this person. Agape is not the physical affection that you show for somebody. It's not just a feeling that happens by chance or naturally. It might come naturally at times, but agape love is an act of the will. Agape love is an act of the will. It's a choice that we make daily to choose to love one another. Jesus is talking about this brotherly love that sacrifices for one another. Last week we talked about being branches that are attached to the vine, that we produce fruit through the vine, and one aspect of that fruit is love. But love really shouldn't just be one of the many things that's apparent, right? When we look at Christian character, one of the things that should be apparent is love, But it shouldn't just be one of the many things. Love should be the thing that is apparent before all other things. It's great to be humble. It's great to have joy. It's great to be gracious. It's it's good to be tenderhearted and to be patient. But before all of those things, we should have love first. And the example that we're given of that is Christ when he says, Love one another as I have loved you. And then just a few days later, he's nailed to the cross. Love each other as I have loved you. And then he gives himself as an atoning sacrifice for the disciples and for us. I couldn't think of a better example. You've got to wonder if the disciples recognize that in that moment. Or if it took years later to realize, oh man, this call that he's called us to is a lot bigger than we thought. It's more difficult than we initially thought. Christ's greatest display of love was that sacrifice that he made. And when it comes to love, we often want the easy love, right? We want to love in a way that comes natural. We want to love people who are easy to get along with. 
We want to love people who can take care of themselves so they don't become a burden sometime down the road. We want to love in a way that's self-sufficient and reciprocal, that doesn't cost us a lot. But the love that Christ is calling us to is sacrificial. It's intentionally sacrificial. And what I'm finding as we dive more into this series is that sacrificial love isn't meant to be an exception or a special moment in time. Sacrificial love is the expectation for every moment. It's not an exception. It's not like the thing that we do once in a while. That should be the first thing in the front of our minds in every moment. As we continue to walk through this passage, Jesus continues to, to paint a picture of what it looks like to abide in him. Verse 14 through 15 says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father. I have made known to you. Friend of God isn't a term I've used a lot. <laughs> it's not a term I've heard a lot. And, um, it's a term that for a long time I thought was kind of you know, too lovey-dovey or I don't know. It just seemed like a weird term to me. I remember the song that we used to, to sing when I was uh, a kid in church. It was called Friend of God. Uh, and I remember thinking, is, is that even anywhere in the Bible? Friend of God. I've heard of, I've heard of children of God, son of God. Um, but I don't remember anything about friend of God. And here it is, right? Here we are. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Jesus says it right here. The only person in the Bible who is really ever called a friend of God is Abraham, which I thought was interesting. It's not a common term. It's not something that we see used a lot, and I'm not sure that it means exactly what we'd like it to mean. When we think of friends, we think of like having a great time and having a good conversation and, and being with each other, and Jesus is all those things but there's something more behind what it means to be a friend when it comes to Christ. Similar to the joy of the Lord, we hear friend of God and we want it to be this soft, cushy relationship when we know somebody's walking alongside us as a support. But there's a qualifying statement in Jesus' words that we can't leave out. You are my friends if you do what I command you which is to be self-sacrificing for the glory of God and for the well-being of people around us. Right, that's a large part of the difference between Abraham and some of God's other greatest leaders through the Bible. Why wasn't, why wasn't David, Moses, Joshua, you know, Daniel, Jacob, why weren't they called friends of God? Moses spoke to God in the burning bush. David was a man after God's own heart. Joshua spoke to the angel right before the battle of Jericho. And Jacob wrestled with God all night. And yet that term, friend of God, isn't used in relation to their story. It's used specifically in relation to Abraham. 
And honestly, I can't give you the perfect answer or the perfect reason for why Jesus never says that about Abraham or why God never says that or, or never says that about Jacob and, and Moses and all those other guys that I mentioned. I don't have the perfect answer for that. But we, what we do know is that Abraham was an incredible man of faith. Right? Even the sacrificial faith, the sacrificial love that we're talking about, he was willing to leave the land of his fathers. Everything that he knew, everybody he knew, to leave them behind and move into what God's will for the future was. He was ready to sacrifice his son that God had promised him if that's what God's will was. And this one is a little more graphic, but he was circumcised at a really old age, and I have to imagine that took some sacrifice. I can't imagine that that was pleasant. But he did all of these things with little to no questioning. That's what you want me to do, God? That's what I'm going to do. I'll go into the unknown. I'll do the thing that's painful. I'll give you that promise that I have been asking for my entire life, if that's what you want. Abraham was far from perfect, but he displayed this strong faith on a regular basis, and he was quick to listen and quick to obey what God was leading him to do. What's interesting is Abraham didn't call himself a friend of God. That wasn't a term that, that Abraham considered himself worthy of. That wasn't a term that Abraham used for himself. It was a term that was used of him. He was called a friend of God. Abraham saw himself as a servant of God because he didn't think he was entitled to know God's plans yet. And for whatever reason, probably his faithfulness and his consistency, God included him on some of those plans for the future. And I think that's a big part of the difference. The term that's used here for John, or in John, for servant, it wasn't this, it wasn't a derogatory term. It wasn't a term that had like shame attached to it. It was a title that was used for a servant who was highly esteemed. Who, somebody who was, who was worthy of maybe even a little respect. And that, that title used here is, is doulos. It wasn't a term of shame. But servants were still seen as tools. Even, even these servants that were highly esteemed, they were still seen as tools. Whether they were paid servants or unpaid servants, they had a job to do, and they didn't have the privilege of knowing why they had that job to do. They didn't know, had the privilege of knowing how to do that job other than whatever they were given in that moment. They didn't know when that job was going to end. They didn't know what the end goal was. That's the word that... Jesus is using for servant, but during Roman time, it was also common in the temple courts to have a group of really select individuals, maybe your closest friends, those who, your confidants, and they were granted the title of friends of the king or friends of the emperor, and they were given this special treatment. They got complete access to the emperor. And he would often seek them out when it came to making decisions. When it came to come, going to war, when it came to making a political decision, 
uh, when it came to some of the trials and whatnot, he would often go to these friends of the king even before he went to his generals and his leaders. He would talk to his, to his friends about whatever it was. So when Jesus is calling the disciples friends, he's, he's not necessarily establishing them as equals. Right? He's still God. The emperor is still the emperor. The kings were still the kings. And God is still God, right? Nobody gets to be called the son of God besides Jesus Christ. And nobody has the same access to God the Father as Jesus Christ. But his disciples were privileged to have the kind of access to him. They were given special access to the most powerful person in the universe, God. And that's why they were called friends of God. Servants work blindly by obligation. But friends know the why and the how of the work, and they choose to work out of faith. By calling us to be other than slaves, God has called us to be partners with him. Not, not equals. We're still expected to do his will, and it's still God's will. It's not ours. In order to be a friend of Christ, we have to do as he commands. But the difference is that we get to participate. Right? We get to play and fulfill our role in this grand narrative of the redemption and the restoration of the world. We know the end of the story. And we're assured of our salvation at the end of, at the end of that story. That's why we get to be called friends of God. And as we move on to verse 16, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 16 is kind of an interesting verse because it's a reminder, it's a promise, and it's a command all at the same time. There's a lot packed into this one verse, right? And this is something that I think, whether you're a Calvinist, Arminianist, Baptist, or Methodist, it doesn't matter where you're at. I think this is something that we can agree on. God initiated creation. God initiated redemption. And God has appointed us to a purpose. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 encompasses this perfectly. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. The purpose that we've been appointed for is part of the command and the promise. In this verse it says that we've been appointed so that you should go and bear fruit. Right, there's two parts of that command. The first is to go. We are called and appointed to go. We are called to live a life of evangelism. Right? And some styles of evangelism are a bit more direct and outspoken. And some aspects or styles of evangelism are more reserved and subdued. I personally tend to be a bit more reserved and subdued. By nature, I'm more of an introvert than an ex extrovert by nature. 
But it is indisputable that God has called each and every one of us to share our faith in some form or fashion. You may not be called to be a street corner preacher. You may not be called to be a missionary in Haiti. But it is indisputable that God has called each and every one of us to share our faith in some form or fashion. It's woven all throughout the New Testament. Some of Jesus' last words, right? The Great Commission. To go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them that everything that Christ commanded them. It was apparently a pretty important thing to Christ. That was some of his last words. And the second part of that command in verse 16 was to bear fruit. Some of that fruit is the conversions or the, or the transformation of the people that we encounter sharing our faith and our stories. And some of that fruit would be evidenced by personally becoming more and more like Christ. Evidenced by the presence of the fruit of the Spirit, which I'm not going to go into. I'm not going to go into a sermon now about the fruit of the Spirit because I, we're going to get there eventually. I know that's part of the series, so I'm not going to go there this morning but our lives should be marked by the character of Christ and the fruit of the Spirit. Right? I'm sure I've used this illustration before here, um, and I'm sure I'll use it again because it's one of my favorites. But what, what, what fruit do apple trees bear? Apples? Orange trees? Peach trees? All right. What do you do with that tree if it doesn't produce the fruit that you're expecting? You get rid of it. <laughs> Unless you find out you really like peaches and you are expecting an apple tree, but in the same way as Christians, the fruit that we're supposed to bear is the character and the will of Christ. And if we're not bearing that fruit, as we learned last week, then it's meaningless. The things that we do, the things that we bear, if it's not the fruit that Christ has given us to bear, if we're not bearing that through his will, through the vine, then that fruit's meaningless. It doesn't matter how good the intentions are. It doesn't matter how great the outcome is. If that's not what Christ's will was, if that's not what God's will for our life is, it's absolutely meaningless. The promise in verse 16 is that whatever we ask the Father in Christ's name will be given to us. Right? But it's important to understand that it's impossible to separate the promise and the command. You can't have one without the other. Without prayer, there's no fruit. And without obedience to Christ's commands, which is evidenced by our fruit, then we can't expect to have our prayers answered. So how do we do that? And I think we're doing a study right now in Discovery Hour, um, called Transforming Prayer, and Daniel Henderson, uh, the guy who wrote the study, says, if all we ever do is seek God's hand, we may miss his face. But if we seek his face, he will be glad to open his hand and satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. I'll read that again, because I think it's really important. If all we ever do is seek God's hand, we may miss his face. Man, isn't that so true? 
when we're looking for the next thing, when we're looking for the next handout, when we're, we're looking for God to bless us in another way, and that's, that's our end goal is that blessing, how often is it that we miss God's face? How often is it that we miss what he's trying to do us in that moment? But if we seek his face, he'll be glad to open his hand and satisfy the deepest desires of our heart. Remember this whole section, the whole thing, started with abiding in Christ. And that starts with first knowing God. How many of us, and I've been really guilty of this at times, how many of us when we pray, we start with a grocery, grocery list of all the things that we need? All the things we want to do, all the things we want to get, we, we, we start with that first and we list all those things off. And I think this phrase that Daniel uses for a pattern of prayer, um, there's another phrase that he uses to explain that prayer is worship-based, scripture-fed, spirit-led prayer. Meaning that we start by praising God because he's absolutely worthy to be praised. We're guided by scripture, which reminds us of all the promises that God has and it shows us a glimpse of who God is. And then we allow the Spirit to guide us and to show us what it is that God wants us to ask for. Amen. What He wants us to do with our lives. If we're going to see our every prayer answered, it's going to be because we're so in tune with God's will that our every desire reflects that will. Amen. Not because we've somehow manipulated God for our own gain. And that only comes by abiding Him, which at times comes at a great cost. So, how then shall we live? Right? That's the big question. That's where we get to every week at the end of the sermon. Great. This is all great information, but what does it change? How then should we live? This series, it's, it's all about the fullness of life. So how do we live and be sacrificial and somehow completely filled, fulfilled at the same time? And I think the most simple way to answer that question is by quick reviewing those verses. Verse 12 through 13 can be described as the command to love one another as Christ loved us. Love one another as Christ loved us. By loving each other sacrificially, even to the point of death, right? Remember that sacrificial love is not an exception. It's meant to be the expectation for every moment. We're supposed to put God first, others second, and ourselves third. Sacrificial love might be something as significant as donating a kidney or welcoming somebody in your home to live with you for a period of time, or it might be something that seems minor, like giving somebody five minutes of your time for a conversation when it's inconvenient. There's a whole lot of room between those ends of the spectrum, but there's a lot of room to love between those ends of the spectrum. And I think the easiest way to be sacrificial is to consistently ask ourselves a question. Is the end goal of what I'm about to say or do intended to bring me glory, my neighbor glory, glory, or God glory. Or if the intention is to edify our life or glorify ourselves at the expense of God or at the expense of our neighbors, then we are failing to obey God's command to love one another as he loved us. 
Verse 14 through 15 can be summarized by the phrase, no longer slaves or servants, but friends of God. And what does it look like to be a friend of God? It means to be clued in to what God's plan is. God's plan is the redemption of all of those who would believe in him and eventually to complete the restoration, the recreation of the world. We know that because Christ told us so. Because we're partners in the gospel, we've been called by God for a purpose, which brings us to verse 16, which can be summarized by the phrase, appointed for a purpose, empowered by God. I've always loved the way that the Westminster Catechism puts it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In everything that we do, we're called to glorify God. One of the ways that we, we do that is by understanding the way that God has gifted us to share our testimony with others. Right? Everybody's different. God's created you different for a specific reason. So if you're quiet and reserved, that's probably by design. It's not a bad thing. And if you're loud and, and boisterous, the same, right? It's a good thing. God's created that, you that way for a purpose, right? He's not asking you to do something he didn't prepare you to do or, to, or he didn't gift you to do, right? So maybe you're a musician or you're an artist or a counselor or you're a farmer or you work at a factory, Right? Maybe you're somebody who's outgoing, or maybe you're somebody who's more of an introvert. Maybe you're somebody who's gone all the time, or maybe you're somebody who's stuck at home most of the time. No matter what the case is, God has prepared us, and he's given us each a purpose in bringing people to know Christ. And another way that we glorify God is by becoming more and more like him so that people see him more through us. Right? If we've been created in the image of God, then hopefully people see us through him. Right? Not one of us fully embodies who God is or what God looks like. But as one body, each of us, when we come together, when the parts are functioning properly, we begin to, be, to more accurately represent the image of Christ. I can't fully represent Christ to the world there's no way I could carry that weight on my shoulders. Two or three of us, it's unlikely that we can fully represent Christ to the world. But when we as a church start functioning fully and properly, I'll tell you what, we can represent Christ to our city. When the churches in our city start, start working together and representing Christ, we can bring Christ to our state that continues and it just keeps growing and growing. Jesus told us that the Father would give us anything that we ask in Christ's name. And when Christ ascended to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit in his place to be in every one of us. Right? So whether it's overcoming a battle with alcoholism or it's in working up the courage to share your faith with somebody God has gone before you. He's gone before you through the work of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin and to prepare you with the word to speak. Right? We've, we have this because God had it first. Amen. And at the end of it all, in verse 17, 
just in case we missed it the first time, Jesus reminds us, these things I command you so that you will love one another. These things I command you so that you will love one another. One key component, if not the key component to living a life with the abundance that Christ promised is by receiving the love of God and sharing that love with those around us. When we do that, we will start to see the other things fall into place. We will start to see that, that fruit blossom. We'll start to see that pruning take some effect when we receive the love of God and we share the love of God. It's a beautiful picture. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. I pray that through the words that I've spoken, no matter how perfect or imperfect, that you would speak to someone today, God. I pray that if there's anybody out there wondering about you, wondering whether they should give their life to you and put their faith in you, I pray that you would speak to them this morning. I pray that you would provide somebody in their life to, to walk alongside them. And I pray that as a church that we would encourage those to continue to pursue you, to see what it looks like to be more like you. And I pray this morning that as we go out this week that we would have the boldness and the courage to share our faith, to share our stories with those around us. And you are an amazing God. You are worthy of every praise and even more praise than we could ever give you, God. This morning, we're here to say we love you. In Christ's name, amen.